Good morning. Good to see everybody here. We are in Proverbs chapter 3 today. Only two verses, uh, four verses rather. 9, 10, 11, and 12. Hebrews 3, 9 through 12. Hear God's word. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Thus far, God's word. A tensile strength. Tensile strength measures the force required to bring an object to its breaking point. So if you're going to be uh, uh, manufacturing tools or building a skyscraper, then you want to use materials that have been tested and proven to have a high tensile strength so that the, the torque on your wrench doesn't cause it to snap and uh, the weight of your skyscraper uh, uh, doesn't uh, cause it to fall on top of you. Well, in the same way, if you're building a life, <clears throat> and we're all uh, building a life, then you want to use materials that have been tested and proven to have not just a high, but an infinite degree of spiritual tensile strength so that not even the extremes of life, uh, whether it be success or disappointment, can break or crush you. Well, last week, uh, Eric Tana showed us one of those materials for life building in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which in sum basically says, trust in the Lord, do not trust in yourself. Or, or as Eric put it last week, have a big view of God and a small view of yourself. Now, that sounds good in principle. I don't think any of us would, would deny that in principle. But how does that really hold up in practice? When we built our house in Indiana, uh, the designer uh, laid out all the plans on paper. In fact, the other day I came across a big roll of blueprints that he had drawn up for our house in Indiana. And then the builder constructed that house on site. And I saw it come together every step of the way. But I am a man of letters, <laughs> not a man of math or physics. And so uh, while I knew in principle that house was going to stand up, I wondered if in practice it was solid enough to keep our king-size bed from falling through the floor and into the living room and our piano from going from the living room down on into the basement. I, I, I wondered if it was solid enough to uh, stand up to the residual forces of hurricane winds that are wont to blow up from the Gulf of Mexico or withstand the F-rated tornadoes that periodically pass through our township. 
So just how great is the spiritual tensile strength of chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? Trusting in the Lord and not in ourselves. Well, the answer is found in our passage this morning. Proverbs 3, 9 through 12, where trusting God in principle is tested in practice. And where that practice is taken to the extremes. On, on the one hand, uh, when things are so good that we're fooled to believe that we don't need God. And, and on the other hand, the extreme that things are so bad that we're fooled to believe that we really don't want God. Now, I don't want to minimize or even sound dismissive about the, the feelings that come at those extremes. Uh, I, I visited them, them both. But I do want to remind us of a point that Eric made last week and one that's well worth remembering. And it's this. Reality is not shaped according to our, our predilections, our, our likes or our dislikes. So, so as it concerns this passage, life is never really so good that we truly do not need God. Uh, and life is never so bad that we truly can say, I don't want God. Rather, as Eric explained, reality is shaped not by our predilections, but by God and his word, God and his wisdom which means to live within the realm of reality, even at its extremes, is to live according to the word of God. That's what's real. That's what's solid. That's what's permanent. That's what allowed the Apostle Paul to say, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. We'll see that in verses 11 and 12 this morning. I know how to abound. Verses 9 and 10. In, every and in any and every circumstance, Paul writes, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So here's the main point to our passage this morning. The main point is this. God's word in principle can be trusted in practice even at the extremes of life. God's word in principle can be trusted in practice, even at the extremes. When things are going well, verses 9 and 10. When things are going not so well, verses 11 and 12. And by inference, at every point in between. God is God of abundance, of extravagance, of love, uh, of delight, all of which are seen here in our passage this morning. God is God in every season of life. Even in this season of COVID, with all of its surprises that have accompanied it, ones of inconvenience and disappointment, isolation, deprivation, even in this season, God's word in principle has the spiritual tensile strength to be trusted in practice. It, it's unbreakable. So let's tackle these two matters in the order that they come to us. The first being the fact that God's word can be trusted even when things are going well. And we see it there in verse number nine. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. 
So honor the Lord with your wealth, that is all that I make, and with the first fruits of your produce, that is the best that I have. Now, that should go without saying, shouldn't it? Ah, but it needs to be said because our tendency is to honor ourselves with what we make and to honor ourselves with the best that we have. This is really interesting. Consider this. Upon its, its formal constitution, as a nation in the Old Testament, as, as the church in the New Testament, uh, both of which were times when things were going well, the first sin among God's people was greed. It was greed. Achan kept what God said he couldn't have, and Ananias and Sapphira kept what they said God could have. Their, their sins of, of greed led to sins of deceit, which led to their deaths all at the hand of God. So God is serious when he says that we are to honor him with all that we make and the best that we have. Now, why is that? What, why is that such a big deal to the Lord? Well, it's a big deal because Deuteronomy 10.14 tells us, To the Lord your God belong the earth with all that is in it. Job 41.11 says, Whatever is under the whole heavens belongs to God. Psalm 24.1 clearly states, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So everything that belongs to you, everything that belongs to me, everything that belongs to us first belongs to God. Honoring the Lord from all that we make and the best that we have is an expression of our regard for him and our recognition of the fact that we really own nothing. We own nothing. He owns everything. So to what degree are you honoring God from what you make and what you have, even the best that you have? That verb honor means to treat as weighty treat as weighty. There are certain persons in my life who carry uh, such a degree of weight with me that I would drop anything and everything to readily give to them from my wealth, uh, joyfully give to them from my best at a moment's notice. And I know that there are people like that in your life as well. The, the question is, does God carry that kind of weight in my life? In your life? Do, do you regard the Lord as a heavy weight or a lightweight? If you regard the Lord as a lightweight, then you probably view him as an insatiable taker, right? He's the one who takes my money and takes my time and he wants to take my possessions. But if you, if you view God as a, as a heavyweight, 
one who carries some weight in your life, then, then you're going to honor him not as a, as a lightweight, uh, an insatiable taker, but as a worthy receiver, someone to whom you gladly give your money and your possession and your times. Our understanding of God is either a lightweight or a heavyweight depends on our understanding of who he is, and we've just seen that he is the creator and the sustainer of everything, as well as our understanding of what he's done. And what he's done is exemplified in that term there in verse number nine, first fruits. First fruits. I was on Facebook the other day and a friend of mine posted a picture of her pomegranate tree, some of which were uh, off the limbs and opened up and the caption simply said, first fruits. Well, what, what does first fruits have to do here in the Bible? When the Old Testament, the first fruits offering was an annual reminder, was an annual reminder of Israel's humble beginnings, their um, prodigious growth, their uh, tragic and terrible slavery, and then their miraculous liberation. And the history behind first fruits is actually found in the instructions for um, how, how they're to be performed, located in Deuteronomy 26. Don't, don't turn there, I'll, I'll read it to you. Concerning Israel's beginning, we read, and you shall make response before the Lord your God. In other words, when you come to offer your first fruits here, here's what you're going to say. You're going to say, a wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And then comes the word concerning their, their growth. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, populous, which led to the captivity. And the Egyptians treated us harshly. They humiliated us. They laid on us hard labor. And then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice. He saw our affliction, our toil, our oppression, and that led to the miraculous liberation. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and he gave us this land a land flowing with milk and honey. And now behold, I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given to me. And then it talks about the, the actual offering. That, that's what they said. And then comes the offering of the first fruits. It says, and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. You shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house and even to the sojourner who is among you. Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11. Because Israel understood and remembered what the Lord had done by rescuing them out of slavery in Egypt, they readily and joyfully offered the first fruits as an expression of their gratitude. And as if freedom wasn't enough, the Lord honored their obedience in verse 9 with blessings in verse 10. Take a look. Barns filled with plenty and vats bursting with wine. 
well, what does this have to do with us? Well, in the same way, when we understand and remember what the Lord did by rescuing us from our slavery to sin and the corresponding death, which is its penalty, then we will readily and joyfully offer the best of what we have, our, our first fruits as an expression of gratitude to him. But even more, we will readily and joyfully offer our very selves since we are first fruits. Those who have a relationship with God in Christ themselves are first fruits, having been buried with Christ in baptism and raised with him, harvested, as it were, from the grave as a first fruit to walk in newness of life. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. And as if long-term freedom from the wages of sin wasn't enough, Jesus goes so far as to pay short-term dividends on our expressions of gratitude to him. Doing so in good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And concerning the size of that measure, uh, I love what Walt Hera wrote in sermon prep this week when he said, you can't outgive God. So to whatever degree you bless him, he will bless to an even greater degree in return. That should capture our imaginations as a church and the way we think about our budget. Is our budget an obligation to be met? If that's all it is, then we will always struggle to meet it. But if our budget is, is actually a ministry plan, uh, a plan that reveals our priorities, uh, uh, a ministry plan that reflects our regard for who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and his purposes in our world, then our ministerial ambitions and financial capacities should be growing from year to year. This should capture my imagination as a person about the way I think of money. The pastor under whom I grew up uh, one Sunday morning in an offhanded sort of way as the ushers were coming down the aisle uh, simply said, you know the money you put in the plate this morning is the only money you'll ever see again. <laughs> do, do I really believe that? Do, do you believe that? That's a return on investment unlike any other. A friend of mine once referred to his work, his job, as an effort to liberate money for ministry. He said, the more money I can make, the more money I can free up for the Lord's service. Do I think of work that way? Do you? That's a way of making any job a means for greater ministry. These views on money and work exemplify the two unassuming bachelors, uh, brothers in fact, who lived together in what was described as a sparsely furnished mobile home down in San Diego. Uh, their long-term goal was to support young men and women preparing for Christian ministry. And so, 
Over the uh, course of four decades, they lived frugally and they gave consistently to the work of Biola University. Fifteen years ago and within nine months of each other, both brothers passed away. And at the time of their deaths, they not only left the memory of their modest annual contributions, but they also left $1.6 million more that they had quietly saved up along the way and now comprises the principal for the fund that is named in their honor, the Wilkinson Endowed Scholarship. Some of you may be at Biola because of the Wilkinson Endowed Scholarship, which according to Kristen, an advancement officer over at Biola, has to date supported hundreds of students and is ably suited to support hundreds and hundreds more in the coming years. Now, interestingly, those brothers who, who only lived down in San Diego never visited Biola, ever, in those 40 years that they were contributing. As it was later written about them, that wasn't necessary, they'd say. All they wanted was for their money to benefit young Christian people preparing for the ministry. The Wilkinson brothers' big vision was a result of their big view of their big God. They didn't give massive amounts at any one time, but they gave consistently and they gave strategically and they gave with an end in sight. The principle of trusting God found in 3.5 was tested by them in practice, even at the extreme found in 3.9. And the result for them, plentiful barns, bursting vats, they lacked nothing in life, as simply as they lived. But blessings that today and on into the future are going to remain pressed down, shaken together, running over. So God's word in principle can be trusted in practice even when things are going well and the temptation is to hold on, to hoard what rightfully belongs to God. Further, God's word can be trusted even when things aren't going well. Take a look at verse number 10. Uh, or 11 rather. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. So don't despise the Lord's discipline, don't actively rebel against it, nor uh, be weary of his reproof, that is, uh, passively disregard it. Why is that? Because things aren't always as they seem. <laughs> things aren't always as they seem. This is true in life. Great duress can lead to great success. The, the lonely and ceaseless repetitions in the practice room can lead to the, the glory of the concert hall. The, the frustrating and imperfect, imperfect renderings in the art studio can lead to the praise at the art exhibition. The, the nervous and tedious adjustments in the workshop can lead to the sensation on the retail showroom. Great duress can lead to great success. And what's true in life is also true in our life with the Lord. Take a look at verse 12. For the Lord reproves him whom he hates. 
No, whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he despairs? No, in whom he delights. So difficulties are a sign. Difficulties in your life are a sign that God really cares about you. He's working on you. He's building you. Uh, Charles Bridges was spot on when he said, God's discipline is that of the family. It's that of the family. Not of the school, much less of the prison. He corrects his children, not as criminals, but as those whom he beholds without spot, made accepted in the beloved. Now, among the parents here this morning, I am certain of two things. The first thing <clears throat> of which I'm certain is that there are all kinds of questions concerning how you should discipline your child or your children. That's the first thing of which I'm certain. But the second thing of which I'm certain is this, that there is no question regarding if you should discipline your child because discipline is an expression of love. Proverbs 13, 24 makes it clear that a parent who refuses to discipline his child is a parent who isn't indifferent toward his child, but actually hates his child. But he who loves him is diligent to discipline him, says the scripture. Well, what's true of us and our children is true of God and his children. And this is most clearly seen in Hebrews chapter 11, where those who displayed historic faith and suffered for it were also commended for their suffering. He Hebrews 11, 2, 6, 39. And as a result, we read that God is not ashamed to be called their God. Hebrews eleven sixteen, Or as he puts it here in 3, 12, he delights in them. It's in this way that God trains us. More, more literally, he gymnasticizes us. That's the term from which we get the word, gymnasium, gymnastics. He, he gymnasticizes us in godliness. The presence of discipline and reproof in your life means that God thinks enough of you to put you through some spiritual training. Which means if there's an absence of discipline or struggle or challenge in your life, then you should thoughtfully examine your relationship with the Lord to determine the degree of its viability or even its existence. Even Jesus was trained in this way. Isn't that something? Jesus was trained in this way. Hebrews 5.8 informs us that he learned obedience through what he suffered thereby making him able, Hebrews 5.8, to sympathize with us, literally feel our weaknesses. Those of you who are feeling particularly weak this morning, God feel, he not only understands, he feels your weakness. To sympathize with our weaknesses as one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, if that's all we gain from Jesus' suffering, that would be enough. But it gets even better. Not only do we have a God who ordains our weaknesses, our, our discipline, our reproof, 
and feels our weaknesses along with us, but we have a God who, according to Hebrews 4.16, invites us now to confidently draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How beautiful. This is why we are able to comfort others with the comfort by which we ourselves have been comforted as we are faithful to do that. How beautiful. Nothing in the life of a believer occurs at a loss. Nothing. So, if on the one hand we know that God is always needed, no matter how well things are going, then on the other hand, we know that God can always be wanted, no matter how tough life gets, because God's word in principle can be trusted in practice during every season of life. Amen. Well, with this in mind, we come to our time of communion. And if you can verbally confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life and entirely believe that he was raised from the dead and you're living a life consonant with those realities, and this meal is for you. But if you can neither confess nor believe those things, then you should wait to participate until you do so that you can then take part with full assurance and joy. I should also say that if you're a Christian but you're not living like it, then you too should also refrain from partaking this morning until you've confessed your sin and repented of it. Well, the purpose behind our communion today is twofold, and it really fits in beautifully with where these few verses have taken us, shown in full there in the life of Jesus. First, it's a time to remember. It's a time to remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was extremely rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. So it's a time to remember that. But it's also a time to proclaim, to proclaim the death of Jesus, who instead of despising the Lord's discipline, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds, you, we, were healed. So let's prepare to remember and to proclaim by taking your elements. And I, I want you to do a couple of things. I want you to take your time, just peel that plastic off the top and then uh, take out the bread, hold it in one hand, hold the cup in the other hand. And then I want you to prayerfully confess any known sin before the Lord and receive his deep and abiding forgiveness.
Lord, as we come to the table this morning, we do so alongside two busy highways and the noise that accompanies it. But when we think about your death that we remember today, we recall that you were crucified along a busy highway and all the sounds that come with it as well as all the derision, all the hatred that was poured upon you. You did that for us. And so we remember that now and we proclaim it in your name and with hearts of gratitude. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim Jesus' death until he comes. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.